Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are beginning in Isaiah 13. Now, Isaiah 13 is the beginning of the next large section of the book of Isaiah. This next section covers the next 11 chapters. And what separates it is that this is Isaiah prophesying against Gentile nations. And it makes sense. It's actually placed in a very reasonable place within the book of Isaiah. You know the last couple of weeks, as we've been talking about the history of the northern and the southern kingdoms, that they have been making alliances with the Gentile nations around them in order to protect themselves from each other, but also to protect themselves from what they perceive as their larger enemies. And so as they're making these deals with the various Gentile nations, sometimes those deals have gone well, sometimes those deals have gone bad, mostly they've gone bad. And so Isaiah keeps saying, trust God, have faith in God, he will protect you. He has already chosen you. You are his people. He has placed his name in Jerusalem. Trust God. He will protect you from all these various Gentile nations. So these prophecies that begin in chapter 13 against the various Gentile nations are designed for the purpose of saying, this is what God is going to do to all these nations. They're going to rise and then they're going to fall. Now, given that Isaiah is prophesying this during the time of Hezekiah's reign, we know that these prophecies are all in advance. We know that these are future prophecies. For instance, he's going to start talking about prophecies against Babylon. But as he's talking about Babylon, he's also going to bring up the Medes. Well, now we're talking about 100 years in advance. It's very much like later on in the book of uh, Isaiah chapter 45. That's where we see that Isaiah predicts Cyrus the Mede 150 years in advance, calls him by name, and says that he is going to be the person responsible for allowing the Jews, the Judahites, to go back and rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. And sure enough, that's exactly the way it turned out. Over the course of human history, there have been a lot of different nations, and those various nations have looked to various different gods, gods after their own creation, their own making. And then they decide that when good things happen, that's their particular god who is the watchman over their particular area, like when we were studying Paul in Athens. We saw that the chief temple in Athens was the home of Athena. Why it was called Athens? Because she was the primary goddess of that whole city. Even though the city was just riddled with various different temples and gods, 
Athena was the one that everybody looked at as she's the protector of our city. And that was very common among different people groups. They would have various gods. Some people, like the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, had whole pantheons of gods. But they still had a primary god. They still had Thor, or they still had Ra, the sun god. They would have primary gods, and then they would have lesser gods who were in charge of lesser things. This is all why Yahweh is referred to as the God of Israel, because you would have the gods of Egypt, you would have the gods of the Romans, the gods of the Greeks, and then you have Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Israelites. The big distinction between Yahweh and all these other gods is that Yahweh is the only God who offers proof, who actually demonstrates his own existence by how he interacts with human history. And one of the chief ways that he demonstrates that he is God and that he is the only God and that all the other gods are not, I mean, as soon as he introduces himself to Moses, God shows up in a burning bush and says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses wants to know, okay, then who are you? Which God are you? Give me a name. And he says, go tell Pharaoh, I am. In other words, I'm the only God that is. All your pantheon of gods, all your various other gods simply are not, but I am. And so one of the ways that God demonstrates that he is the only God who really is God, one of the ways that Yahweh shows himself in human history is by doing the very thing we're about to read. He prophesies what's going to happen in the future, and no other respected religious literature in the history of the world does that. You can go pick up the Quran and read it. You can go pick up the Bhagavad Gita and read it. You can go read all the stuff of Bhagwan Roshnish. You can go read the Bahuala. You can go read these various different religions of the world, and none of them take the risk that the Bible takes. And that risk is to predict the future in advance. So much so that the critics of the book of Isaiah claim that from chapter 40 forward, it couldn't possibly have been written by the same Isaiah, the son of Amos, who introduces himself and keeps naming himself all the way through this book. They say it can't be that guy because we know when he lived. And so it had to be somebody else who tacked those last chapters on because they're just too accurate. There's no way that he could name Cyrus the Mede 150 years in advance. And then lo and behold, the Medes and the Persians beat up on the Babylonians and their primary king becomes Cyrus. I mean, that's just impossible. And so they say that it has to be of human origin. Tonight, we're going to see how you expose the lie of that kind of thinking, because we know that this was written by Isaiah, the son of Amos. And we know that Hezekiah was king when he was writing these things. And we know that he is predicting the fall of Babylon and then going to jump past the immediate fall of Babylon, which is going to happen under the Assyrians. He's going to leap forward and mention the Medes, who were going to assault Babylon, overtake Babylon completely. And that's going to happen long after Isaiah's dead. And so 
it is impossible not to conclude, the closer you look at this section of the Bible, it's impossible not to conclude that something supernatural is taking place. This cannot be of human origin. This has to be God's revelation of himself. Now, also interesting is that as we're reading about the fall of Babylon, who is not even the superpower in the Middle East at this point, Assyria is the big dog right now. Babylon's going to rise, but Assyria is actually going to go conquer Babylon before that happens. And then the Medo-Persians are going to come in and conquer Babylon, just like Isaiah says. But as he is predicting these things, he's going to use day of the Lord language. Now, we've been talking about the day of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, we talked about the day of the Lord so that we could understand the wrath of God, so that we could hear the very good news that we are not appointed to wrath. So by now, you should at least have a passing familiarity with what the day of the Lord is. When we were talking about the day of the Lord, I read a bit of Isaiah 13 to you just so that you could get a feel for what the day of the Lord is. This day of the Lord language is going to be applied in Isaiah 13 to the fall of Babylon. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel applies this same language, this same imagery of celestial disturbances and the wrath of God to the fall of Egypt. And so that has caused some people to say, well, then that must be figurative language. Because after all, when Babylon fell, when Egypt fell, the sun and the moon did not go dark. Stars did not fall from the sky. So therefore, it must be all figurative. So we're going to have to deal with that as well as we work our way through Isaiah 13 and really through the next 10 chapters after that. By the time we get to Isaiah 14, you're going to see Isaiah talk to the king of Babylon and talk right through him to Satan behind him. It's fascinating stuff because he starts out talking to the king of Babylon and then talks to the demon that possesses him. Fascinating stuff. Now, as we've been looking at these kind of prophetic things the last several weeks, I have emphasized to you how Old Testament prophecy works, how Old Testament prophets would see future events and would compress them into one event. The example that I've given over and over is Isaiah saying, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay, that actually happened. And then he says, and the government will be on his shoulders. That didn't happen. Jesus did not take up the reins of government. But we know from all the prophets that he will. He's going to return to establish his kingdom. He's going to return to rule from Jerusalem. All the Gentile nations are going to flow to him, and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. That's all biblical language. That all has to happen. But it didn't happen during his first incarnation. But when Isaiah saw it, it was all part and parcel of one big thing. Only the course of time demonstrates that these things are separated. So I gave you the example of looking at a mountain range in the distance and thinking, gee, that just looks like one range of mountains. Then as you get closer to it, you find out that it's mountains and valleys and peaks and valleys and that it's not just one time up and over. There's a whole bunch of mountains, but from the distance, it looks like a single range. That's the best example I can give you for how Isaiah looks at the future of what's going to happen And he makes these gigantic leaps. For instance, he's talking about the fall of Babylon. 
and suddenly launches into day of the Lord language. And then that day of the Lord stuff doesn't actually occur, but Jesus walks on the planet, picks up that same language, casts it into the future from him, and says that's still yet to happen. So we've got Jesus' own authority, as I'm going to show you tonight. I'm not just, I'm just introducing still. I'm just getting you used to where we're going here. Jesus himself takes that language, quotes directly from Isaiah 13, and casts it on into the future. And he quotes the section of the day of the Lord language. So we know that Jesus' own interpretation of what we're about to read is that it hasn't happened yet, even though Isaiah saw it as part and parcel of the fall of Babylon, even though Ezekiel saw it as part and parcel of the fall of Egypt. Now, among our post-millennial friends and brethren, they'll look at all that and say, well, you know, Jesus says it, yes. Joel says it, yes. Peter seems to quote it on the day of Pentecost, yes. And so it must all be figurative. It must never be literal. It must always be figurative because they want to say that Jesus returned in the destruction of Jerusalem. And since these celestial disturbances are part of the return of Christ, you're going to see that tonight in Matthew 24 when we go look at it, that Jesus takes all of these day of the Lord phenomena and then puts himself in the middle of it and says, the sign of the Son of Man is going to be part of all that, and I'm going to return on clouds of glory. Okay, so he inserts himself into the day of the Lord stuff. But if you're coming at this from a post-millennial view, you sort of read all of this backwards. Rather than reading it progressively, you read it as, well, Jesus, when he came in 70 AD to destroy Jerusalem, also did not actually return in clouds of glory, and also the sun wasn't darkened, and the moon did not become like blood, and the stars did not fall. And so it must be figurative, and then they read it backwards to Ezekiel, and backwards to Isaiah, and backwards to Joel, and say, that's all figurative too. The way that I read it, and I think the way that the Bible presents it, is progressively revealing more and more of the ultimate plan of God so that each of these prophets use that language. Jesus comes on the planet, also uses that language, and then you get to the book of Revelation, 92 AD, and he casts it out into the future. So I see it as literal circumstances, literal disturbances that are going to happen because Jesus places his own return and the sign of his return right in the middle of all that. So if you say it's figurative, then you have to say Jesus is figuratively coming back. But I believe he's literally coming back, and I believe he's literally coming back as a judge. And so the problem, you know, that I have so frequently with the idea of taking things in a non-literal fashion or an allegorical fashion is that if you start reading the Bible allegorically, there's really no place to stop. You can start allegorizing everything. And I contend that if the Bible doesn't mean what it says, then we don't know what it means because the meaning changes depending on who's interpreting. And they can come up with anything so in order for there to be any unanimity of thought and understanding of the Bible, we have to read it for what it actually says and then apply our understanding to what it actually says as opposed to saying, now it says this, but what it means is, and then you get some wild interpretation that is nothing like the words that were on the page. 
So what I hope to also demonstrate tonight to you is that there is this consistency to this language, and even though it didn't occur in a physical sense at the time of the fall of Babylon, the fact that Jesus and John, and by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it, the fact that they all cast it into the future yet means that it is a literal circumstance. It just hasn't happened yet. Make sense? Yes. But Isaiah saw it as all one big thing. So, of course, he'd bring it up that way. Of course, he'd stick it in that prophecy because he sees the judgment of God, the day of the Lord, as one big thing. Over the next 11 chapters, we're going to see nine different Gentile nations mentioned. And actually, this prophecy comes in its right chronological place because if we're talking about Hezekiah's reign when Isaiah would have been saying these things and writing these things, then the nations of Western Asia, the ones that are on the Tigris and on the Euphrates River, they're at that point starting to rise up and become more menacing and becoming more powerful there in the Middle East. And at the time that Isaiah is writing, as I've mentioned already, Assyria is the chief nation. But he starts writing about Babylon, because that's who's coming. And actually, that's who the southern kingdom, the Judahites, that's who they're going to be captured by. The temple is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians, by the Chaldeans, and they're going to go into servitude in Babylon. But then Isaiah predicts that Babylon is going to be taken over by the Medes and the Persians, and Cyrus is going to be the chief Persian who lets them come back and rebuild their temple, and that takes us into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it all happened exactly like is predicted here on the end of Isaiah, proven by the fact that the critics of Isaiah continue to say he couldn't have written it. It's just too accurate. These are the same people who complain that the book of Daniel couldn't have been written by Daniel. It had to be a late-date forgery because it's just too accurate. And yet all the evidence, including the Qumran caves, all the evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that Daniel really is an ancient book. And if that's true, then the Bible continues to be the only piece of religious literature in the history of planet Earth that risks telling you what the future is, and only a God who actually is could do that. Get it? That's why no other gods do it. That's why no other literature does it. God does it so that he can prove, look, I'm God. I'm in charge. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Yes, sir? A prophecy that is just too accurate is exactly what we would expect from an almighty, sovereign God, which proves the point. Which proves the point, exactly. Yeah, it can't be real because it's too accurate. So when Isaiah wrote these messages, Assyria was about to attack the Syro-Palestine area. The culmination of these Assyrian attacks comes about when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sacks the city of Babylon in 689 B.C. Now, since we know that's when it happened, we know that Isaiah was dead and gone. So then, maybe what Isaiah is referring to here is this immediate fall of Babylon at the hand of the Assyrians coming up in 689, demonstrating that Babylon, which was the greatest city of its day, was not immune to the advancing Assyrians but since this prophecy also includes the reference to the Medes, 
then he's also talking about the fall of Babylon to Medo-Persia, which actually happens in 539 BC. So whether he's talking about the immediate fall of Babylon to the Assyrians or the ultimate fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persians, either way, it's still a prophecy. It's still future to Isaiah. And they both actually happen. So Isaiah has this very accurate batting average going on. There are really, there's three great writing prophets of the Old Testament among the major prophets. You know the difference between the major and the minor prophets? The flat third. And I'm so sorry. And yet you knew that was coming, didn't you? Yeah. Musical joke that two people got. No, the difference is how big their books are. The major prophets are basically Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And they all write about God's judgment on Gentile nations. So even though God is the God of Israel, he's also the God of the whole world because he is able to predict and then judge Gentile nations who are powerless to resist his judgment when it occurs. He brings up nations. He takes down nations. He brings up kings. He takes down kings. And he does all that for the benefit of his people Israel which is really good to know that the God who is in control of history does things with the benefit of his people in mind. If that is the God who's got your back, you're going to be okay. Babylon shows up a lot. In fact, Babylon shows up all the way into the book of Revelation. So either Babylon is going to be rebuilt. I don't know how many of you remember this. I'm old enough to remember it, but Saddam Hussein for a while was trying to rebuild Babylon. But the Bible says that it wasn't going to be rebuilt. So despite Saddam Hussein's best efforts, never happened. He ends up hiding in the dirt somewhere and Babylon is not built yet. And yet when you get to the book of Revelation, you read about this future fall of Babylon whether that is the Babylonian system or whether that's the Babylonian gods or whether that's the actual city of Babylon, there are curses in the book of Revelation directed at Babylon implying that it is an actual physical place. So Babylon looms very large and when we read about these prophecies of Babylon here, you're going to start feeling that foreshadow of Babylon to come. And as I said, along the way, we're going to read about the day of the Lord, the time of God's judgment and fierce anger, which all prefigures the ultimate day of the Lord when all the nations are going to be judged and are going to suffer God's wrath. So the language that's in chapter 13 makes it obvious that Isaiah sees the continuation of God's judgments against these Gentile nations, and he sees it as one large prophecy it's just separated by time in our view. Okay, I think that's adequate for introduction. Let's start reading. Chapter 13 of the book of Isaiah starts with God amassing an army to himself. Hang on to that language because that's language that you're even going to see in the New Testament. This idea that God is going to assemble the nations for warfare. This is the oracle. This is the vision concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Okay, now there's no question about this is still the same guy who wrote the beginning of the book. So the very fact that he predicts the future accurately in advance 
is undeniable. So you can argue all you want about chapter 40 forward. Chapter 13 also includes phenomenally accurate prophecy against nations that are going to rise. Remember again, Babylon isn't even the major power yet in the Middle East. And yet he's going to predict the fall of Babylon at the hands of the Medes and the Persians. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. That word is literally bald. For those of you who want to make a joke, go ahead. It means on a, on a bald hill that has no trees on it, put a standard up there. Plant your flag up there so that everybody can see it. First off, it's up on a raised hill so everybody can look up and see it. And it's not obscured by trees or shrubbery or anything else. There's the standard calling the armies together. Plant your flag, plant your standard on the bare hill, and then raise your voice to the armies here. Wave your hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. In other words, the nobles, the kings, the mighty and the powerful people think that they're protected behind their doors. But God is going to amass an army that's going to break down the doors of the mighty and the powerful. I have commanded my... The NASB says consecrated ones. It is the word Kodesh. In this context, it means separated ones, the ones that God has called to use by himself. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalting ones, and I have called them to execute my anger. I said earlier that this prophecy is placed really, really strategically. We've just gotten done reading that God used Assyria to punish Israel. So God was in charge of the armies of Assyria, even though the armies of Assyria were not trying to fulfill the prophecy of God. Nevertheless, God says that he used them to punish Israel, and then he turns around and punishes Assyria for the haughtiness of heart with which they attacked Jerusalem or attacked Israel. So We've just read that. We, we just know that this sovereign God has been proclaimed by Isaiah and that Isaiah has said that God can use Gentile nations and he can move them, he can sift them, he can bring them up, he can knock them down, he can do whatever he wants with them, and he uses these Gentile nations and Gentile armies in order to punish his people, but then will punish those armies to protect his people. And so naturally then Isaiah could follow with I have commanded my separated ones, these Gentiles I've called to myself. I've called mighty warriors, proud, exalting ones to execute my anger. So God can use the armies of the earth, the enemies of Israel, to execute his wrath on his people when he wants to correct them. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people, a sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. Notice it is not just one. God here is saying, I'm going to gather people groups. I'm going to gather various Gentile nations to compose an army like no one's ever seen. And it'll be my anger. It'll be my army. And it will execute my anger. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. 
That's the summation of everything you've read before. Now you know exactly what God intends. To muster an army unlike any army that has ever been on planet Earth in order to execute his judgment, his anger. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. The Lord and his instruments of indignation. He calls the armies of the earth that he's going to collect his instruments of indignation. They're his army. They're his battle axe. They're going to execute his anger. And they are going to destroy the whole land. Verse 6, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Okay, so the immediate context is going to be about Babylon and the fall of Babylon. And yet notice where Isaiah is. He's all the way to the eschatological day of the Lord. And as we continue to look at the language of the ultimate day of the Lord, you're going to see God gathering an army from all the nations. So Isaiah is predicting the same stuff that John the Revelator is predicting, the same stuff that Jesus is going to talk about in Matthew 24. It's all part and parcel of this one big prophetic vision of the wrath of God being poured out at the end of time. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Almighty. El Shaddai. Almighty. If he has all the might, how much might does that leave over for you? Nothing. None. None. So that if he wants to execute his almighty power in judgment and vengeance, how much power do the people have to resist? Nothing. Nothing. They got nothing going because he is, proper name, almighty. God almighty is going to send a destruction. And therefore, all hands will fall limp. The picture is nobody's going to be fighting back. Nobody's pushing back. Nobody's punching back. All hands fall powerless. And every man's heart will melt within him. No one's going to have any courage. No one's going to go, come on, guys, let's go fight that God. Instead, they're going to melt in their hearts. And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. And they will writhe like a woman in labor. Does that language sound familiar? That woman in labor language. It's brought up a lot when talking about the time of tribulation. Leading up to the ultimate day of the Lord. That every man is walking around with his hands around his stomach. Bent over like a woman in labor. This is very consistent imagery. God is trying to tell you something repeatedly. That this time of his judgment is going to be so bad that men are going to be in anguish. And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor, and they will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. They're just going to burn up. Has anybody here, probably everybody here, has seen Steven Spielberg's attempt at demonstrating this? Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? At the end, when they decide to lift the cover of the ark and the fire of God comes out, men's faces just melt. Steven Spielberg, a Jew, taking a shot at trying to demonstrate what this is talking about. Men's faces aflame and just melting away. 
They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Now, starting at verse 10, we get into what I referred to earlier as the celestial disturbances. This particular imagery of even the heavens being disturbed is imagery that we find through the whole rest of the Bible. I already mentioned to you that Ezekiel uses this same language when referring to the fall of Egypt. But let's start by reading it and then look at a couple places just so you get a feel for the fact that this is thematic, but you'll also see that Jesus and John cast it out into the future. So this whole description of this day of the Lord, this time of terror, this time of horrible trouble, this time of desolation hasn't happened yet, even though it's described in the context of the fall of Babylon and the fall of Egypt. It's actually ultimately about the eschatological end and the day of the Lord and the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. Now you start to get some sense of why Daniel would use that language and why Jesus would use that language and say, yeah, I know, I know you've had a bad time. I know tribulation, I get it. In the world you'll have tribulation. But that's nothing like the tribulation, the great tribulation, a time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again. It's another one of the reasons that I don't agree with the post-millennial notion that it happened in 70 AD, because a whole lot of other really bad things have happened since then. Hitler, you know, a whole lot of bad stuff has happened to the Jews since 70 AD. But Jesus said it's a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. Jeremiah picks it up and says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. So we know now who the recipients of that trouble are. This is God correcting his people Israel the same way he did when he brought the Assyrians down and used them to punish his people. So this is a pattern of how God works. Verse 10 says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. And thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and I will abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Now, if you're going to argue that verse 10 has already occurred in some allegorical, symbolic way, if you're going to argue that in some symbolic way, the stars of heaven, all the constellations did not flash forth their light. The sun is dark and the moon is not going to shed his blood, but that that doesn't literally describe the sun, moon, and stars that are in the heaven. It's describing some allegorical, symbolic kind of thing. Then what are you going to do about verse 11 when it says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I'll put an end to the arrogance of the proud. That hasn't happened yet. And yet those two things are intimately connected. One and the other both have to happen together. And even if you argue that verse 10 has already been accomplished around, let's say, 70 AD in some sort of allegorical sense, you would also have to say that since then, God has completely abased the haughtiness of the ruthless. 
Has he done that yet? No. Have you found any arrogant people lately? Any haters of God on the planet still? Anybody still exercising their ego in order to take advantage of other people? Have you all seen that anywhere? Well, if you have, that means that this has not happened yet. And yet Isaiah saw it as a real thing that is going to happen. Turn to Joel 2 for a moment. Let's see what Joel has to say about it, because Joel picks up this very same language. Joel chapter 2. I am really focusing on verse 10, but it's just impossible not to read before that. I mean, the first chapter just starts right out with this terrible devastation that's coming via all these locusts, and then there's going to be all this starvation, there's going to be these droughts. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, so now you know where the locale is. We're talking about Zion, we're talking about Jerusalem. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and a mighty people. Who are these great and mighty people? It's the army God has assembled. He's gotten together all these Gentiles to create this army so that they can go attack Zion. Sound an alarm on the holy mountain. There's a great and a mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Sound like Jesus? Sound like Daniel? Sound like Jeremiah? They're all predicting a time such as never was or ever would be again. And part of what Joel describes is an army amassed, the very army that is described in Isaiah 13, this army that God amasses unlike any other army, any other group of people ever amassed ever or ever will be again to the years of many generations. Verse 3, a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but it's a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. In other words, when that army comes, it destroys everything in its path. And all it leaves in its wake is destruction. Their appearance is like the appearance of many horses and like war horses, so they run. With the noise of, with a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish, all faces turning pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, and they do not deviate from their paths, nor do they crowd each other. They march everyone in his path, and when they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on to the city. They run on to the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Look at verse 10. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. And the stars lose their brightness. That sounds similar. It's actually the same language that Isaiah already described. 
after God has assembled an army, then he's going to use that army to punish his people. So there's going to be an alarm blown in Zion. And then this great army amassed by God is going to come upon them. And then there are going to be all these signs in the heaven, all these celestial disturbances. Verse 11, and the Lord utters his voice before his army. Now we know this is God's army that he has collected, that he is united. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. And the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Then Matthew picks up the same language. Jesus picks up the same language in the book of Matthew. Turn to Matthew 24. Do me a favor, Steve, if you would. Turn to Mark 13. You're going to read Mark 13, 24 to 27. Tom, if you would. Luke 21, you're going to read verses 25 to 28. Luke 21, 25 to 28. Steve, Mark 13, 24 to 27. For the rest of us, we are in Matthew 24. We're going to start reading uh, verse 27. Not yet. I'll get to you. You got somewhere to be? All right. Contextually, starting at verse 24, Jesus says, false Christs and false prophets will arise. They will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the very elect. I think you should know by now, this should be implanted into your collective memory by now, that this reference to the elect is Israel, the elect of Israel. The church isn't in existence yet. The concept of the elect of the Gentiles doesn't exist yet. Paul's ministry doesn't exist yet. Jesus hasn't been to the cross yet. So whenever he says elect, they're thinking of Isaiah's words, Jacob, my chosen, Israel, mine elect. So it's very specific. There are false prophets that are going to rise and show signs and wonders who would mislead even God's chosen people, Israel, if that were possible. It's not possible because God is going to preserve them. Contextually, then, Jesus is going to reply to, don't follow the false prophets. Even if you hear that Messiah is here on the planet, don't go look for him because this is what it's going to be like when I return. Follow the logic. Verse 25, behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, behold, Messiah is in the wilderness, don't go forward. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, on a night of fierce lightning, everybody living in this area sees the lightning. Everybody from east to west sees the lightning flash across the sky. He says, that's what it's going to be like when I come back. People aren't going to have to say, hey, he's hiding in the wilderness. Or, hey, he's hiding in an inner room. He's in a closet somewhere. He's difficult to find. Come here, I'll show you where he is. He says, when I come back, everybody's going to see it. And then just to guarantee that everybody notices the return of the Son of Man, he says in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's also in Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18, that after the great war at the return of Christ, 
that there's going to be the flesh of captains and the flesh of kings and the birds of prey are going to come feast. And God even says, come and dine on the feast of the Lord that he gives to the carrion birds as they eat the mighty men of the planet. Jesus validates that, casts it out into the future. And then says, verse 29, listen to him. He's going to quote Isaiah 13. But immediately after the tribulation of those days... So now we have some idea when this is going to happen. First, there's going to be a great tribulation, time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And then immediately following that, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. If you have a translation like the NASB, they actually place that whole phrase in capital letters so that you see that that's a direct quote. Where is it a direct quote from? From Isaiah 13, what we just read. So Jesus says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the things that Isaiah predicted are going to happen. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, against the backdrop of that utterly black sky, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. That's how everybody's going to see him from the east to the west. Because they're going to be looking up going, oh, it's really dark. The sun, the moon, the stars, everything is black. And then the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens. Now, we don't know what that sign is. We don't know what it's going to look like. We just know it's going to be something that everybody sees. And how does everybody react to that? The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. When he left the planet, it says that he was enveloped by clouds and taken up off the planet. And then the angel says to the men of Galilee, this same Jesus is going to return the same way you saw him come. Here he himself says, I'm going to come back the same way you're about to see me go. I'm coming in clouds of glory. And when he does come in the clouds of glory, all the tribes of the earth run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and cry to the rocks and say, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Jesus here says, when I come back, people are going to mourn because they see the Son of Man coming. If you have lived your whole life in nothing but sin and debauchery, hatred toward God, and a denial of everything that is Christian or godly or righteous, and then suddenly the sun, the moon, the stars all go dark, you're going to walk outside and go, okay, weird day. And then the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens? You're going to be afraid. You're going to run for cover. Because suddenly the very one who you have always treated as an enemy is back and he is the Almighty. And Jesus said, that's going to be the reaction of the people left on earth when I come back this way. Why won't that be our reaction? We'll be gone. We won't be here. That's what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. We are not appointed to this wrath. And the time of tribulation such as never was or ever would be is Jacob's trouble. And the armies that God amasses are to correct Zion. This has nothing to do with the church. 
So Christ comes the first time to gather his church so that we meet the Lord in the air and so will we ever be with the Lord. That is distinctly different from the sign of Christ appearing in the sky against a dark backdrop and everybody left on the planet runs for cover and fear and they're mourning and wailing. Those are two different reactions. There's the group that loves his appearing and the crowd that runs away from him when he appears. Got that? Okay, so he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. We just recently went through Isaiah 11 and in Isaiah 11:12, 12 and in Isaiah 27, 12 to 13 and in Zechariah 2, 6 and in Zechariah 7, 14 we saw that same language where God said I'm going to scatter you to the four winds of heaven and he was talking to Israel I'm going to scatter you to the four winds of heaven here the angel of the Lord comes with a great trumpet to gather together his elect who's that? Israel and gather them from the four winds of heaven the very place where God said I scattered you so what's the purpose of the return of the Son of Man? To regather Israel, to establish his kingdom at Jerusalem, and to conquer his enemies and rule with that rod of iron as he sets up his kingdom. That's consistent with everything that the prophets have said, and that's consistent with all the predictions of Christ ultimately ruling over the Gentile nations, and ruling from Jerusalem, and regathering all 12 tribes. And it comes from the mouth of Jesus. And if you don't know your Old Testament prophecy, you won't get all of those really important connections that all exist. He's quoting Old Testament prophets for you so that you know exactly where to go back and where to look so that you can draw all these very consistent conclusions. You need to know your Old Testament to understand even Jesus' words. Mark 13, 24, 27, that would be now, Steve, Mark 13, 24 to 27, we're going to read Mark's account of Jesus saying this same thing. And then the preceding verses, he also repeats what Matthew said. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. That's a very clear definition of what the four winds means. Some people will say, well, he gathers his elect from the four winds. So that's the church being gathered from heaven, from the four winds. Mark takes the time to say, no, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And that's especially obvious if you go back and you look at the prophecies about, I will scatter you to the four winds, the four corners of the earth. Luke 21, 25 to 28 says the same thing. All I'm demonstrating to you here is that this statement from Jesus was so important, all three synoptic gospels repeat it. Even though you can find unique information in all three of the synoptics, this is one of the quintessential important moments that all three of them record because this is Jesus telling us exactly what's going to happen in the end of the days, at the end of the age. And it's already predicted all the way back to Isaiah, which is why he quotes Isaiah. I'm going to quit talking now, Tom, if you would. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear 
and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Whose redemption is drawing near? Israel. Israel. Why? Because all the Old Testament prophets have all promised this glorious future to Israel and have all promised that God is going to redeem them. And God, we saw it last week, said, I'm going to take them a second time. I'm going to go redeem them a second time. And he compares it to how he redeemed them out of Egypt. So, of course, then, the promise would be, when you see these things starting to happen, look up, because your redemption is drawing near. That's Israel's promise. I've always heard it as the church's promise. When you see these things come to pass, look up because your redemption draws near like that's a rapture verse or something. It has nothing to do with the rapture contextually. You'll notice that it doesn't mention the rapture anywhere contextually there. This is Jesus promising the same thing that all the Old Testament prophets promised, which is the regathering, the restitution, the redemption of Israel that second time. Turn to Revelation then. Revelation 6 to begin with. Are you convinced now that the very thing that Isaiah predicts in Isaiah 13, Jesus picks it up, quotes it, and casts it into the future? And that is why I keep saying this is progressive in its revelatory nature. If you only had Isaiah to deal with, you would say, well, Isaiah is talking about the fall of Gentile nations starting with Babylon. And, well, those celestial signs didn't happen. But the very fact that Jesus picks up that very language, quotes it directly from Isaiah, and then casts it into the future and sticks himself in the middle of it means that it is still very literal in Jesus' mind. And if you say that it's only figurative that the sun, moon, and stars are going to go dark, then you have to say the return of Christ is figurative and that he doesn't come back in clouds of glory and that the people on the earth aren't really upset about it and because it's all figurative. It either means exactly what it says, especially considering how often it's repeated. It's repeated by Isaiah. It's repeated by Ezekiel. It's repeated by Joel. It's repeated, by the way, by Peter at the day of Pentecost. We just didn't bother to look at that one tonight. It's repeated by Matthew, Mark, Luke. Now we're going to read it in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, 92 to 96 AD, so that would be after 70 AD. So this isn't talking about the fall of Jerusalem. It is still a future event, a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again when the return of the Son of Man is going to occur on the planet. Revelation 6, we're just going to take a quick look here. Start at verse 9 of Revelation 6. When he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. And I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, 
made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind, and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. So you've got the same language here yet again, the same description of celestial disturbances and the earthly consequences of them. Go forward to chapter 8. We're going to be honing in on verse 12, but we're going to start reading at verse 10. The third angel sounded, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night was the same way. And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in the mid-heaven, saying in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet and the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, you think it's bad so far? Just wait, it's about to get really bad. So all I was seeking to demonstrate here, now we can go back to Isaiah. All I was seeking to demonstrate is that this language that Isaiah uses prophetically in chapter 13, especially verse 10, is language that is repeated, Ezekiel and Joel and Peter at Pentecost, repeated by Jesus, you don't get a better authority than that, repeated by John in the book of Revelation, and then all of that imagery is cast forward. So that is something that is yet to come. How do I know it's yet to come? Because Jesus, my authority, placed it out in the future, and he said that when it happens, he himself returns. So unless you can tell me where he is, especially considering that he said, if anybody says that they know where I am and they tell you to come see, don't go. Because everybody's going to see it when I return. I'm going to make the sun and the moon and the stars all dark. And against the black backdrop of the heavens, the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens. And people are going to run for cover. That has not happened yet. Therefore, I conclude that what is being predicted here by Isaiah concerning the day of the Lord has not happened yet. Isaiah sees it as all one prophecy. He sees it as one group of events that are all pieced together. It's only because of time going by that we know that there is a separation between these events and Jesus separates it so much that he casts it out into the future. Thus, says verse 11, thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and I will abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. That has not happened yet, but it has to. God says he's going to do it. First person, I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud, has not occurred yet. That's how we know that the rest of this hasn't occurred yet. Verse 12, I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold. I will make mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir, 
which was the purest gold. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts. That's exactly what we just read in the book of Revelation. So then John casts it out in the future from 92, 96 AD. Still has not occurred, and you can't shoehorn that into 70 AD. Just doesn't work. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be like that of a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them. They will each turn to his own people, and each one will flee to his own land. In other words, everybody's going to run when this happens. That's what Jesus said. When they see the sign of man on the earth, they're all going to run. They're all going to mourn. They're all going to run to the rocks and the caves and the dens of the hill. Anyone who is found is going to be thrust through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered. Their wives will be ravished. It sounds like a really bad time. Right from there, Isaiah leaps to, with all of that eschatological language, He leaps to, behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them, and they will not value silver nor take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men, and they will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So that prophecy of the day of the Lord leaps straight to the Medes taking down Babylon. And that, as I said earlier, occurs in 539 B.C., well after Isaiah is dead and gone. Accurate prophecy. I keep saying this over and over, so I'm going to say it one more time, and then I'm going to let you go. What you see is a piece of the prophecy. When you look at the whole prophecy of Isaiah, you see this piece of it that was already accomplished. It was future to Isaiah, but it actually happened. You don't have to read your Bible to know it. You can go look at Middle East history, and it's a fact that Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. That's why we know the date, because it actually occurred. Isaiah sees it as all one big prophecy, and being in that part of it has already occurred historically, accurately, physically, literally, in time then that is the sure guarantee that the whole rest of it has to happen. That's the sure guarantee that the return of Christ is going to be the sun and the moon and the stars going dark and the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the heavens and man running for cover. And God is going to amass the army of the Gentiles and he's going to use that to punish Zion and then he's going to restore Zion and he's going to send his angel out to collect from the four winds all of his elect and bring them back and establish the kingdom that every prophet in the Old Testament promises to Israel. And how do I know that all is going to happen? Because the first part already happened. It already occurred. Therefore, we know for sure it's all got to happen. You got it? Got it. Or you got to convince me that the Bible, which so far has a perfect batting average, hasn't missed yet, you got to convince me the Bible is wrong. That the Bible doesn't mean what it says. And you can't do that because it's way too accurate so far. And that means all the rest of it's coming, including he's coming back to get us.
And that makes me happy. All right, questions? All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.